So um, the Apostle Paul has moved from practical matters into this extended discussion of important theological points. And right now we're looking at this idea that this world that we're living in is not what is permanent. It is impermanent, right? Um, God's got something better and uh, other than the world that we're living in now. So I read the entirety of this last week to you, um, talking about our, our, our temporary dwelling, this body that you're living in now, versus the permanent dwelling, which is um, the resurrected body. So the temporary dwelling is like a tent, okay? So um, those of you that are, have experienced homelessness, then you understand this very well. It's temporary, right? And, you know, those of us that have a, a house have kind of an understanding of something that is more permanent. But even if you have a house, the permanence of that is really not permanent because you're going to lose that at some point in time, okay? The Apostle Paul concludes in 2 Corinthians 5.10, by saying we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. So that should put us in a position where we fear the Lord. We realize that we're all going to stand before Jesus. We're We're going to give an answer for our lives. And his response to this idea that we're going to appear before Christ in judgment is this, verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 5, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. So why would he go into all of that? Well, there were these usurpers that were coming into Corinth, right? These false teachers that were trying to unseat the Apostle Paul. Uh, You know, we just went through this election season this year, and we have, you know, the the two parties vying against one another. And so you have those that have a, a seat in Congress, and you have another party that is trying to unseat them by presenting alternative views and political understandings. It's the same idea here. The difference is it's not just two different views. It's the truth versus lies, essentially. And so the Apostle Paul says, listen, we're not trying to get your vote. When he says we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, that's what he's basically saying. Hey, I'm not trying to get your vote. I don't need your vote, right? Um, we are, in fact, giving you an opportunity to take, to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are, quote, out of our mind, as some say it is, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. This is verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all 
that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and who was raised again. So let's look at verses 11 and 12. Um, He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, right? So I mentioned this last week. We looked at this last week, but we're going to kind of stay in uh, context here. This letter is an apologetic for Paul's ministry to the Corinthian church, but he wasn't concerned about his standing with God. He wasn't trying to manipulate people. Um, We don't need boats from people in order to keep us in good standing with God, right? If everybody likes you, then you're okay with the Lord. But if they don't, you're not. No, 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 no. That's not what the Apostle Paul was saying. He didn't need their approval. Um, Rather, they needed to respect Paul and the teaching that he brought to them for their own sake. Paul appealed to their consciences. He was saying, hey, believe what you know to be true about us. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This is why we talk to people about Jesus or why we should. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Do you? Do you share that with other people? Or, you know, do you kind of hide it? Do you take the light and put it under a bushel? All right. The reason that we are willing to share with others is because we know that all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, okay? Um, he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you a, uh, a cause or cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So you should be able to boast about your church and its leaders, not because they are celebrities, live in luxury, have academic credentials, or sought-after speakers with book deals. God isn't concerned about outward appearance, but what is in the heart. First Samuel 16, 7, remember the anointing of David? Um, Samuel saw the older brothers of David. They were tall. They were specimens. They were like Saul. And the Lord said, no, these are not the ones I've chosen. The Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. Just realize that. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. You look at somebody like, and I'm not picking on anybody, you know, just off the top of my head, okay, basketball player, um, LeBron James. The guy's an athletic specimen. He's like a football player in a basketball player's body, okay? I mean, if he starts driving that ball to the basket, nobody can stand in his way. He's just a specimen. He really, really is. You know, and there's all this comparison between him and Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan had a bit different physicality. He wasn't as broad, but Michael Jordan could move and groove and slide in between people and do things that... LeBron, but see, their that's their physicality is um, is an incredible natural gift, right? But God doesn't judge by that. He's not looking at how tall you are, how short you are, how big you are, right? Um, how beautiful you are. He judges your heart. He's looking at your heart. That's what he really cares about. So that's the Apostle Paul here. We're not commending ourselves to you, 
but giving you a cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance. Oh, well, that preacher's amazing. He can really preach, right? So you've got this preacher that just can hold people in the palm of his or her hand and get people to laugh and get people to cry. So those are natural giftings, right? Um, preachers that the Lord have, has used have been, you know, I don't know, not terribly gifted in terms of their speaking ability. So uh, the individual that is largely um, accredited with starting the first great awakening in the United States of America was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was short. He wore thick glasses and he read his sermons from a manuscript and he would read his sermon. It's like me reading my computer right now. And people would weep and they would fall on their knees and they would want to repent. Why? Because he was an amazing speaker? Because he was engaging? Because it was the word of God. And the Holy Spirit had fallen on those people and they were convicted by the Holy Spirit. Right. So, you know, um, I don't even know the two preachers that are referred to here, but I can remember hearing an illustration years ago about two churches in England that were across the street from each other. And in one church, uh, the pastor would preach and the people would leave saying, wow, the preacher is amazing. This church is amazing. And across the street, the preacher would preach and the people would leave saying, God is amazing and say nothing at all about the preacher. Who would I rather be? I hope I would rather be the preacher that is ignored in favor of the Lord, right? That I get out of the way and just let the Lord speak. And people, I don't want you to follow me. I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. I want you to follow Jesus. I don't want the responsibility of trying to um, adjust and alter and heal and change your life. I want to deliver you to the Lord who can make all of the transformation that is necessary, right? So you should boast if your leaders have and display a genuine heart for the Lord if they follow Jesus and live out what they teach. If you're ashamed of your church, ask yourself why. So, okay, here we are in this small little building in downtown Garland. Right now it looks like, you know, Syria that's been bombed out there in front of the church. I mean, we've got a giant you know, backhoe or whatever you want to call it is parked right out here in front of the church. Um, you know, versus, you know, I don't know. I don't want to mention another church so that I disparage them, but, you know, some church that's beautiful and big and, you know, has chandeliers or whatever they have. Do you really think that matters? Do you really think that matters? Maybe we need to figure out what's important, right? Right. 
Now, I know those of you that are sitting here in front of me and probably those of you that are watching, you, you recognize what's important, but maybe we're still tempted to move toward and be drawn toward, uh, you know, that, that fool's gold, right? That, that bright and beautiful and, and what appears to be significant because of, uh, you know, the facilities or whatever it is, okay? Um, if you're ashamed of your church, ask yourself why. Why do you still attend? If you never talk about what you learn there, if you rarely participate in its ministry and its outreach, then why do you attend? Find another church or find good reasons to be proud of where you are. Find ways to help your church improve its outreach and reputation in the community. So the Apostle Paul was saying here, these people were you know, trying to come and unseat him and push him out of the way because they were better speakers than he was. And yet he was healing people and raising the dead. But you know what? People are just drawn to what is pretty, right? They, we identify with certain people because they are what we want to be like. Well, I may not be what you want to be like, but am I preaching the word? Are you paying attention to that? Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Another translation says compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, that is the um, English Standard Version, okay? Paul is likely referring when he says, we're, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. He's likely referring to ecstatic experience, experience as the result of being carried away in the Holy Spirit. So if you've been attending our church for a while or paying attention to sermons that I've preached recently online, um, I've spoken of Saul and the Holy Spirit came upon Saul on several occasions to the degree that it was said, is Saul among the prophets? So prophesying, we would think as preaching, okay? But it involved, and in certain Pentecostal context involves ecstatic experience, okay? So people that are in charismatic or Pentecostal churches may do things that for some of us in this room would seem uncomfortable, okay? Um, have you heard of uh, being slain in the spirit? This is someone that literally falls on the ground. They're overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a church that really was at the epicenter of the renewal of the Pentecostal experience. It was in uh, on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. And those people were 
were largely disparaged and discounted because of some of the things that they were doing. They would they would move around and they would laugh and all of these sorts of things. And now, granted, as I, I said when I talked about, you know, Saul and this movement of the Spirit called prophesying, there can be a lot of um, uh, emulation and imitation, okay? People when they are emotional, can have an impact on other people, right? But when the Holy Spirit is powerfully in play, there are a lot of things that may happen. So I've had people that have come forward in church and I pray for them and I can feel them almost ready to swoon. It's not because I'm powerful, right? It's because they really believe what's going on and they're responding to the Holy Spirit. So, you know, we're human beings. We laugh, we cry, right? Something happens and we react to that. So somebody may be overwhelmed and they fall to the ground. Somebody may laugh, somebody may cry. Does that mean that this is not legitimate? No, I don't think so any more that it means that it's automatically legitimate that the Holy Spirit is there if they do laugh and cry because people can manufacture those things as well or they can laugh and cry and fall because of other people, right? But the reality is that when the Holy Spirit is present, it is an overwhelming experience, right? Hence, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.13, if we are beside ourselves, have you ever, for spiritual reasons or non-spiritual reasons, have you ever felt beside yourself? This is me, but I'm kind of like outside myself. Have you ever been there? That's an interesting, that's an interesting experience. It's weird, actually. It's almost like you're looking at yourself, okay? And so there is the, the physical you, the natural you, okay? There is the spiritual person. And there can be this separation between the two at times. And so the Apostle Paul says, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. So pastors like me are going to discourage excessive emotionalism in church. And maybe I do that, or at least my expectations are so, to the degree that people are not allowing themselves to be impacted enough by the Holy Spirit. I'm not a fan of excessive emotionalism. Screaming, crying, rolling around on the ground, jumping chairs, I don't care what it is. I want you to be a reasonable human being that is powerfully affected by the Holy Spirit and using your mind, your will, and your emotions to make decisions to follow Jesus, okay? So Paul is likely referring here then to the ecstatic experience as the result of being carried away in the Holy Spirit and or extreme displays of emotion in the response to the heartfelt love for God. So when you love somebody, what happens when you love somebody? 
you love your grandkids, you love your husband, your wife, you love, you know, what, a parent. It can affect you very, very powerfully, right? It can warm your heart. It can make you cry. It can make you laugh, all of those things. Um, this can happen when we have that kind of experience with God. So Paul has had these experiences. The gift and expression of tongues is one example. This is why the apostle required uh, the exotic experience and controversial, really, gift to be expressed in private, not in public worship. Tongues exists, okay? But there can be pretension that surrounds that as well. In churches where tongues are largely expected, people sometimes may manufacture that, okay? And I I don't like to parrot tongues because I don't want to mock what God can do. And I don't want to... Um, I don't want to um, encourage people to do the same. But the reality is tongues exists. Um, this language, if you will, of the spirit that goes beyond the intellectual and the rational. But if I have a bunch of people in a congregation that are doing this, that can cause people to manufacture something that isn't from the Holy Spirit, okay? And I don't want that. So if someone were to speak in tongues in our community, and I'm sure that has happened on more than one occasion, then that should happen quietly, right? That should happen quietly. So the Holy Spirit may um, affect someone, uh, with an A, affect them, and they may begin to speak in tongues, but you control the volume, okay? You don't have to start talking so loud! Then suddenly you're drawing attention to yourself and immediately you quench the spirit. And then you're caught in the middle of it because the Holy Spirit initiated it, inspired it, but now you've quenched the spirit. Now what do you do? It either stops or you start pretending, right? So the Apostle Paul said, if we're in our right mind, if we're controlling this, it's for you. But if not, we are being overwhelmed and allowing ourselves to be carried away for the purpose of the Lord, right? And why is that? Verse 14 The love of Christ controls us or compels us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, okay? So what controls you? What compels you? What constrains you? Anger, fear, love, love, anger, fear of whom or of what? What makes your eyes well up with tears? What makes your heart leap in your chest? Anything? What is on your mind most of the time? Oh, there's a good question. What is on your mind most of the time? Where does your income go? What motivates you? What gets you out of bed? What would it take for you to give up as much as Paul did? 
For Paul and his companions, it was Jesus' love that drove them to do what they did. They went into all the world and they proclaimed the gospel to friendly and to hostile crowds because they believed that we will all be judged and that Jesus Christ offers the only sure way to receive eternal life. Do you really believe in heaven and hell? Do you really believe that people are going to one place or the other? He says, one has died for all, therefore all has died. What does that mean? So there was a song uh, by a band named Petra. This is a Christian rock band that came out in the 70s. And I won't sing it or, you know, you'll all leave. Um, but it went all over me, all over me. I've got the blood of an innocent man all over me. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for everyone, regardless of whether they, they believe it or not. You have the blood of an innocent man on your hands. He didn't die for himself. He didn't sin. He who knew no sin became our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He died for you. You have the blood of Christ on your hands. What are you doing with that? Okay. Did the Jews crucify Jesus? Did the Romans crucify Jesus? Well, that was just the effective, okay, tool. The reason, the why of Jesus' crucifixion is me and you. You have the blood of an innocent man on your hands. What are you doing with that? If you confess that you are responsible for the death of Christ, you are forgiven. If you try to put that away and poo-poo it and don't take responsibility for it, you have the blood of an innocent man on your hands and you're guilty for it, okay? Um, Christ's death on the cross created a cutting line. You fall on one side or the other. You're either dead to God or you're dead to the world. One way or the other, that's what it says. One has died for all, therefore all have died. You're either dead to Christ, you're dead to God, or you're dead to the world. The problem is we're like, um, I, uh, you know, I'm giving these pop references or these rock songs. There's another rock song from the 80s from a band called Van Halen. Shortly after uh, Sammy Hagar started uh, becoming the lead singer for them. And uh, I don't even, I, I don't know the title of the song. I just know the chorus. Um, but Sammy Hagar sings, The best of both worlds. You can't have the best of both worlds. You can't have heaven and earth. You can't. You've got to give up one or you've got to give up the other, okay? Sorry, Sammy. You know, you're a great rock singer and rock star and all that. Sorry, Van Halen, but you can't have the best of both worlds. You've died because Christ has died. I can't have that. 
So the question you have to ask yourself is, will I go on in my natural state, right? Where I'm living for this world, but I'm dead to God. Or will I allow Christ to transform me? And I recognize that I'm dead to self and dead to this world, but alive for eternal life. Okay. All right, I have a lot more notes here. It says, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. So who do you live for? Most of us live for ourselves. Some of us may live for our children or our spouse, okay? But you live for someone and you live, or you live for something, what I would say is if you have said Jesus is Lord, stop living for yourself. Live for Christ. So, you know, you can look at a lot of different stories that have been told um, in more than one culture about someone who has died for another. Okay. What if someone died for you? What would your evaluation of that be? They died for you. They died in your place, right? In most cultures, the value is you choose to live your life for that person, okay? You choose to live your life to honor that person. Jesus, however, didn't merely save our temporal lives, our temporary lives, right? But he suffered and died and rose to save us from eternal damnation, granting us eternal life. But that's valid only for those that surrender their lives to Christ. So have you put your faith in him? Have you received his gift of eternal life? There's a tendency to, to, to think that, you know, well, we're all going to heaven, Right? We all have eternal life. You're just going to live on forever one way or the other. You're not. You need to make a decision. Christ died for you. Will you live for him? If you choose to live for him, then you live for eternity. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. That might sound like, wow, I'm giving up so much. Especially those of you that are younger. You're like, man, there's just so much out there. Ultimately, it's, it's worthless. You get to my age and you start realizing, you know what? Whatever. It just doesn't matter. You, you know, we're just being led along to believe that all of this. What if I had everything? What if I had all the money? What if I had all, you know, the cool car and the cool house and the cool spouse and, you know, uh, you know, okay, what if I had the power? You know, you've got politicians and they just, oh my gosh, they don't ever go away, do they? They never go away. They don't ever shut up. Because everything is about the here and now. No, I'm telling you, it's about the hereafter. That's what we need. 
So we got to stop living for the world, the flesh, and we need to stop being deceived by the devil. Um, I remember back in the 80s and early 90s, there was a T-shirt that kids used to wear all the time. Um, most of you here are aware, and those of you that don't know that are online, I was a youth minister for a long time, okay? And these kids used to wear this T-shirt back in the late 80s, early 90s. And it would say something like, basketball is life. The rest is details. Baseball is life. The rest is details. It's basically, this is what I live my life for. This is my focus. The rest of this is irrelevant. The reality, Jesus is life. The rest is details. This is eternal life. So these kids, bless their hearts. I will guarantee you the overwhelming majority of them did not go on to play professional basketball or baseball or football or whatever. They didn't. And they have now realized that that's nonsense, which is why a lot of them are little Marxists now who want the government to support them, right? You can be whatever you want to be. Okay, well, I tried, and that failed, so now I need the government to support me. No, you need Jesus. That's what you need, okay? This is all temporary. Christ is life. The rest is details. Um, there's an old song uh, by a country singer, and I, oh, I can't remember his name right now, but the line in the song says, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's what you need to think. This isn't permanent, okay? If you've got everything going for you, it doesn't matter. If you don't have everything going for you, that's actually a good thing. Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. You know what? Because you realize this is not everything that it appears to be, right? So if fame and fortune, right, and power were all they're, you know, promoted to be, then why do so many celebrities commit suicide? Why are so many politicians unhappy? Right? Because we were never intended to be worshipped. This isn't all there is. There's more, okay? Verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's for, uh, according to the natural. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. So the Apostle Paul saw Jesus initially in the natural, and he persecuted Christians because he didn't see Jesus as being the Son of God. We regard him thus, that is Christ, in the flesh, in the natural, no longer. And this is a verse you should memorize, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of this going on today. Book after book comes out trying to revise the identity and the history of Jesus. There's a so-called scholar named Bart Ehrman who's done a great deal of damage to Christianity 
by publishing books disparaging the New Testament. His books are books like Misquoting Jesus, Jesus Interrupted, and as of the writing of these notes, he had a book called How Jesus Became the Son of God. Another um, historian, quote-unquote scholar, a Muslim historian named Reza Aslan, published a book in 2013 titled Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, with the thesis that Jesus was simply a political radical, right? Surprise, Jesus is defined by what Islam uh, thinks of him. Then there's a Jewish scholar named uh, Amy Jill Levine, who published a book in 2006 titled The The Misunderstood Jew, wherein Jesus is seen as little more than a Jewish rabbi who is misunderstood by Gentiles. No surprising, not surprisingly, coming from a Jewish perspective. All of these perspectives begin by dismissing the integrity of the four Gospels as primary source materials and then reinterpreting, even reinventing Jesus to fit their preconceived ideas. This is what happened in 2006 when Dan Brown's infamous book, The Da Vinci Code. Do you remember this novel? It caused such a stir with his appeal to the Gnostic Jesus. Well, beginning in the second century, the Gnostics co-opted Jesus and stole his identity, turning him into an esoteric spokesman for their Greek metaphysical philosophical ideas. Interestingly, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, seems to have been exposed to Gnostic ideas about Jesus, which helps to explain the Muslim refusal to accept that Jesus died on the cross. Did you know that Muslims refuse to believe that Jesus died on the cross? Jesus died for your sins on the cross. What happens when you deny that he died on the cross? So, so you'll understand that I'm not just you know, spouting off. This is from the Quran. In the Quran, Jesus is called Isa. Christians and Jews have corrupted their scriptures. Although Christians believed Isa died on a cross and Jews claimed they killed him, in reality, he was not killed or crucified, and those who said he was crucified lied. Isa did not die, but ascended to Allah. On the day of resurrection, Isa himself will be a witness against Jews and Christians for believing in his death. That's all from the Quran. There's also a fraudulent document dating around the 13th of the 16th century called the Gospel of Barnabas, which Muslims likely used to corroborate their story. However, it was the second to fourth century Gnostics who taught that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Instead, their version of Jesus either A, made someone else die for him, or B, made his spirit ascend into heaven, leaving who knows what to die on the cross. Muslims follow the substitutionary idea. But while we would say Jesus died as a substitution for our death, Muslims believe that someone else died as a substitution for Christ. It is a perversion, certainly. Okay, So this is the example of someone regarding Jesus according to the flesh, according to the natural. We need to explain Jesus away. 
but it's not the New Testament Jesus, which is the only Jesus that is authentic and legitimate. So the Apostle Paul said, we regard no one according to the flesh any longer. So we need to stop looking at each other externally, okay? Uh, You know, you look at yourself in the mirror, you look at other people in the face, tall, short, you know, whatever terms you would use, okay? You're skinny, you're fat, you're, you know, whatever. These are just humanistic terms, okay? We need to stop looking at people according to the natural. We look at people based on our upbringing. You may judge people for a variety of reasons, their culture, their ethnicity, their so-called race, their economic or social standing. It would even seem um, that inherited tendencies exist to accept or reject certain people. That, that's just in the natural. You are, you are affected by people like automatically. I, I mean, I say this all the time. I'm at the gym every day, so I know I give probably too many gym examples. But <clears throat> so these glasses, I have two types of glasses. These are my near NBO glasses, near vision only, okay? So when I wear these, you guys are slightly out of focus, but I can see you fairly well. But the computer here is in really good focus, okay? And then I have my far vision glasses, which allow me when I'm driving, you know, to see stuff in a distance. But if I were to look down at something that's close, I can't see it. Okay. Now, if I don't wear either set of glasses, I can see the detail on my hand right now. Wow, I'm getting old. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I take my glasses off when I'm at the gym because I want to. I want to try so hard not to judge people. But there's just a natural bent in me that I just. Oh, I don't like so many things that people do. Do you know how many men peacock? Do you know what that means? Yeah. I'm using it as a, a verb there. They peacock. So there was a guy at the gym the other day, and he was wearing his headphones. And he was looking at himself in the mirror, and he was going. And of course... I've been a karate sensei for 33 years or more, and I'm like, your technique sucks. You don't know what you're doing. And this is blurry. You're a pretentious peacock. And I just, and I just, I was like, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then I would look up at him again, and he would just, why? Why does that even matter? Because I hate people that pretend and show off. I can't stand that, right? But why does it even matter, right? All of us have whatever this natural bent is, okay? This tendency to vaunt ourselves above others, to judge other people. And that's all I'm doing with this kid. And he's a kid. He was, I don't know. I don't have my glasses on, but he had to have been in his 20s. Like, what is the point? Who cares? Why do I care? Why am I watching you peacock in front of the mirror? I just need to get back to my workout, but that's why I keep my glasses off. That and the fact that I don't want to be a lustful fool because there are some 
Ooh, there's some very fine ladies that are working out. If I have my glasses off, they're like a Monet painting. And I'm like, yep, you're beautiful and you're out there and I don't have to worry about that, okay? <laughs> but this is what happens when we regard people according to the natural. People think of Christ in the natural, okay? We think of one another in the natural. But the reality is we should regard no one in the natural any longer, and that is according to the flesh. We've got to stop looking at people in the natural. Um, and then, you know, the last verse, and I'll end here, and we'll end by 8 o'clock, which means two more minutes. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Are you in Christ? That's what decides whether you're saved or not. This is you. This is Christ. Are you in Christ? Then you're a new creature, a new creation. You have been reborn. You have been born again. You have been born from above. So start looking at yourself this way. Stop regarding yourself in the mirror, okay? Because typically what we're doing is we have certain cultural expectations. I need to look like this, or I need to look like this, okay? You know, and there's these younger guys at the gym, and they're just naturally, you know, I'm like, whatever, dude, you're 20. Wait till you're 60. Let's see if you look like that then, kid. I'm not impressed. You didn't work for that. You're so proud of that, but you didn't work for that. You didn't earn that, okay? It's all, it's such stupidity and arrogance on their part and jealousy on my part. It's, it's in the natural. It doesn't matter, okay? I'm a new creation in Christ. It's what I said several weeks ago, either on Sunday morning or Sunday night. I mean, I, listen, man, I got super thin in 2018, man. I had 5.3% body fat. I was 55 years old. Do you know how hard that is to do? Okay. And then the pandemic happened and it's just been a disaster ever since then. But the reality is, you know what? My life wasn't better then. I wasn't happier then. My quality of life didn't go up then. Be healthy for sure. Do you think of yourself as skinny or fat or whatever? It doesn't matter. Be who you are, right? And identify with Jesus and realize it's about being the new creation in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, anyone, they are a new creation. That's on the inside, right? Old things are passed away. All the old things, the good old things and the bad old things, they're all passed away. Everything has become new. That's what we need to be. We need to follow Jesus and let everything be new. We need to look at Jesus for who he is, the son of God, and we need to allow him to transform us into what he wanted, wants us to be, what he created us to be in the new creation. Amen? Amen. Thank you guys for joining us. We appreciate you online. And thank you for joining us here locally. God bless.